on this episode, Tortoise Helicopters, Misplaced versus Lost, and Names That Sound Like Trail Names, But Aren't. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Well, hey, welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. Today, on today's show, we're talking with Sage Clegg. And Sage is an adventurer, long distance through hiker, um, desert tortoise biologist. You know, she's got a lot of interesting things that we hopefully we'll get to, to chat to her more about. Uh, but I first learned about Sage through a mutual friend, Colby Kirk, who's been on the show. And uh, we had tried to get Sage back on the show like a couple years ago, I want to say. And it didn't work out because I think you were headed to the desert or I forget something was going on and it was like conflicting. But um, uh, and then uh, last month at the Ben Distance Hikers meetup. I ran into Sage and met her in person for the first time. And so we, you know, we're like, oh, we got to get on the show. We'll have to do this again. And and she's like, yeah, I, I think I live across the street from your co-host, Severia. You know, I'm like, what? <laughs> so Sage, welcome Literally. to the show. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I guess by somehow or other, we, you know, I guess to get you on the show, we had to have Severia move to Bend and uh yeah. you know, bring your dog and you know like all of those things together converge and then eventually yeah. it all happens so, then, so welcome to the show yeah sage and how fast is severia's wi-fi signal sage i mean i'm, I'm assuming you're right. just pinching <laughs> pinching it straight from her right well i mean why yeah, would right, you pay, right. why yeah. would you pay for it we can just use severia's across the exactly. street <laughs> so sage tell us uh you know i i think i tried to cover your background a little bit but you know tell us a little bit more about yourself and who you are and what you do so I'm Sage and I'm a wildlife biologist and a through hiker and um, I live in Bend and yeah, I grew up in Northern California. Um, always have liked being outside and somehow uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to describe myself <laughs> and why I got to be where I'm at. But uh, yeah, I wound up taking a long time to find myself as a through hiker. Um, I instructed for Outward Bound for a long time and um, kind of got burned out and was really needing a break and wound up deciding to go on a hike. And uh, during that hike, I was like, oh, <laughs> this, this is the way to be. So, uh, yeah, I kind of just fell in love with through hiking and um, decided that I just wanted to do it more. Um, yeah, so I wound up hiking for 30 days on the Grand Enchantment Trail, which is a really cool route out in uh, New Mexico. It goes, it's New Mexico, Arizona Trail. I just need a minute after running across the street. <laughs> how did you how did you end up deciding on the Grand Enchantment Trail? Well, it was winter and <laughs> it was winter time and I really wanted to go for a through hike and um a friend of mine who was kind of a mentor for me wound up he was like, "Oh, well there's this like newish desert route. I'm sure it'll be fine for a winter route." And uh yeah, so I was like, okay, well, that sounds cool. And uh, I looked into it and I was able to order some maps online. And turns out that here we are like over a decade later and the person who made that route lives in Bend as well. Oh my gosh. And he's a good friend now. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, but I had no idea. And at the time, like, I just ordered his maps and was like, oh, I'm gonna go through hike. And he like, I emailed him a couple of times and he was like, yeah, it's not really a winter route. You you should not be doing this in November. <laughs> and uh, I was like, 
oh, whatever. That guy doesn't know anything. <laughs> Wait a minute. Are you telling me an outdoorsy person moved to Bend? That's ridiculous. <laughs> there can't be outdoorsy people in Bend. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, was he right? No, he okay. wasn't right. But he didn't. He really just was like, oh, this is some like random girl from the internet who doesn't know anything and she's going to like go out there and get herself killed on this desert hiking route. That and, I created. Uh, yeah. yeah, and he didn't want the bad press or anything, rightfully so. And um, So after that email that I got from him that was like, uh, yeah, I don't think you should be hiking this trail. It's really not meant for this time of year. I just kind of didn't even tell him that I was going to go on it anymore. I just like planned my through hike and uh, I just was planning to go out for a month and see what happened and like what it was going to be like. And um, it was my 29th birthday on the hike, like a few days after I started the hike. And I just like got rolling and um, it was really hard, but it was also really exciting to like just be out there walking all day and you know, I'd wake up and it would be really, really cold and um, sometimes snowing and sometimes windy and I'd just pack up my stuff and walk on and like get to a little resupply town where I would have mailed myself a box and then I'd open that box and be like, why did I pack this stuff? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. It was just such a huge learning curve and every day I was like, I I was learning a ton and it was really challenging, <laughs> but it was really fun and super refreshing to like get to get out there and like just enjoy, enjoy walking and uh, seeing what it was like to to be through hiking for the first time and like not working and just taking a break from everything else in the world and just like being out there. So, yeah, it was really, really fun. And uh, towards the end of my time on the hike, I got I got snowed out. I wound up getting snowed on a lot through my time of hiking. I was hiking from mid-November through mid-December, um, but I was out walking through, I think it's called the Blue Mountains in, in New Mexico, and it was just dumping snow, and it was really beautiful, and I was just trucking along, and most of the route is, it's like a mix of off trail and um, logging roads and just like, I don't know, it's kind of a grab bag of everything, but there's a lot of navigation to it. And I really liked it for that reason, because I got to like actually be navigating and like really like working at figuring out where I was and staying found. And um, it was, it was just this cool meditative experience of like, being being out there and um, moving across a state and getting to know New Mexico. I hadn't really been there that much before. So I got to got to be fully immersed and by the time I got snowed off of that trail, I wound up actually emailing Brett when I got he's the guy who created the trail. Um, I emailed him to ask about a couple of alternative routes because I just couldn't get through the high peak area anymore because there was too much snow. And uh, he was like, wait, what? You're out there? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Like, <laughs> you're actually hiking this thing? And uh, I was like, well, yeah, I'm actually like wrapping up my month on the trail and it was really great and I'll give you feedback for it and stuff. But um, I just need some help with this last little bit. And he wound up sending me some maps that I printed at like a local library. And then, um, yeah, then I, I just finished my route and wound up hoping to be able to come back and work on that route a little bit more and finish it. Um, and I also left that route knowing that I really wanted to go hike the Pacific Crest Trail the next summer. So that was kind of my my vision after getting a taste of through hiking and realizing that I really, really liked it. And uh, so I just had to come up with a couple of things to figure out by that, to like be able to make that dream a reality to like hike the Pacific Crest Trail um, the next summer. Mostly that was, I needed to figure out how to make some money and like be able to take a big chunk of time off and um, kind of get myself 
in a mindset where I could leave leave my other realities and just be on a trail and like be out there and I'm have still that trying out. to figure that out myself I <laughs> <laughs> one of yeah, these years maybe uh, you can clue me in on the secret yeah uh well a big part of the secret for me to be able to make that happen was that I'd happened to just stumble across this tortoise work this job as a wildlife biologist um down in the Mojave Desert, and it's a very seasonal job. So tortoises are super cool creatures, and they like to hibernate most of the time. So they're, it's actually called brumation, and they're underground, like pretty much like 90% of their lives. And uh, in the spring and in the fall, they come up above ground, and that's when we can have a chance of actually studying them and seeing what's up. and. I wound up just stumbling across this super awesome job um, back in the spring of 2008. And they were doing this, at the time, the biggest translocation of tortoises that had ever happened. And they needed, they didn't care what kind of training you had or who you were, as long as you could live in the desert in your truck. And uh, what, what, wait, <laughs> let me back you up right there. What is a translocation of tortoises? What, what is that? Uh, so it's actually this really sad thing, um, at least on this scale that I had no idea at the time in 2008, what a translocation even was. I was just like, cool, tortoises, desert, sign me up. I'm ready. And, uh, what it is, what turns out to be is it's a fancy word for detortoising a whole landscape. So this was a giant military base in Southern California and they wanted Instead of, like in the past up until recently, they've just left tortoises on the landscape and maybe they kill a few while they're doing their maneuvers and stuff um, with big tanks and, you know, giant convoys of people. But now with new laws and protections, they really, somebody decided that moving these tortoises was what was going to be good for them, like population-wise. So a translocation is going through finding all these tortoises that are on the landscape putting little transmitters on them which we can talk about more later because that's pretty fun um and then over the course of like a couple of years finding all the tortoises and then going through and systematically picking them up and moving them to a new translocation site that has been deemed like a good spot to to put these tortoises based on like the populations that exist on those new sites and the protections and stuff that they have over there. Um, so that project that I jumped on in 2008, um, I think we moved around 600-ish tortoises. So you relocated 600 in one year or over a course of years? Oh yeah, it was all in like one spring. Oh wow. And it was, it was crazy. We hired, uh, there's this like old timey tortoise biologist dude who's quite the multitasker guy. And he also happens to be a helicopter pilot. And so he has his own little helicopter that he built. And then he made these like <laughs> crazy saddlebags for the helicopter. They're like these giant metal uh, containers that go on the side of the helicopter. And then when we pick up a tortoise out in the wild, we put that tortoise into a Rubbermaid bin with little holes that were painstakingly damped in the top by me and my other new coworkers <laughs> with an ice pick. <laughs> and uh, we like put the tortoises in there and we like gently pack them into those little saddlebags on the helicopter and fly them from over to their new home and dropped them off and on that particular job we were um, putting those tortoises into their new homes and we would have like either made a little artificial burrow for them with an auger and um, and we'd kind of like put some extra little sand or something from the place we picked them up and then we can like decorate their new burrow a little <laughs> bit to like hopefully help them feel more at home and stuff like that, but who knows if any of this works, that was what we were trying to also see. And we were moving all these tortoises and we were also trying to see 
how they did when they got moved. And um, the answer, unfortunately, for that translocation was not very well because we, we wound up picking a couple of translocation sites that had uh, some coyote packs, basically a lot of carnivores that like to eat tortoises. And it was also, it was just a bad moment to, to move them because, well, there's always rotating droughts through the Mojave and um, lots of things going on there. So yeah, it wound up being a pretty devastating thing to like move all these tortoises and then the, in some of the places that we moved them, a lot of them wound up dying within the first couple of years. So mm -hmm. it was it was kind of a bummer. Luckily for me, the place that I was mostly tracking the tortoises was a really good site for those tortoises, and a lot of them survived, which was really cool. And just last fall, um, 15 years later, after this translocation, I was down doing surveys in the same area and we were still finding some of those tortoises that we had awesome. moved. So that was really cool. And it's just nice to know that like, okay, it wasn't a total loss, but, and these are just my opinions. There's no science, unfortunately, published saying that translocation is dumb, but <laughs> in my humble opinion, it's dumb and we should stop doing it. Now, but, how, how do they, uh, you're saying they're underground, do they dig their own dens or are these like other animals' dens that they repurpose? I mean, are they, able, you know, they seem like such slow moving things. I'm trying to imagine a, a tortoise digging itself a den and I'm, I'm not seeing it in my head. Yeah, well, tortoises are super tough and they are like little, they're like little excavating machines, basically. And uh, that's just what they're made to do. They're made to like, basically drink no water, eat hardly anything, mate and make babies and dig holes. <laughs> and they're there in the in the desert to like yeah, one of the big roles that they that they fill is to create all these holes and all this shade and shelter in the desert that other creatures use all the time too. And they depending on the substrate, they can really like dig down and dig super deep burrows. By super deep, I mean like two to three meters. Sometimes they find caliche caves. So those are like caves that are in like wash banks along the sides of washes and stuff and um, kind of more like cemented areas. And they will just over hundreds of years, um, it's like a multi-generation burrow. They'll kind of like dig them out and keep them maintained and get the pack rat stuff out of there and just kind of keep those things going and make them a little deeper and little chip at a time. And then there's just like straight up soil burrows that come and go and that they are maintaining every year and like making and then they get destroyed in a flood and then they have to make again and stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah. And they can use both their front legs and their back legs to dig the burrows. Is there any risk when you have the floods of them drowning in the burrows or are they able to get out? Uh, I think they leave. I mean, the vast majority of the time, whenever it's raining in the desert, the tortoises, even no matter the temperature, they come out and they're waiting at these little drinking depressions that they make. They make these like adorable little like ponds in desert pavement or whatever that will hold the water. They like make these little puddles and then they just kind of go out and if they think it's going to rain, like the humidity changes or whatever, they go out and they just sit there and they wait. And so sometimes on surveys on like rainy days, we get to walk by and like see these tortoises just like hanging out, also just waiting for the rain. Sorry, the timeline here is you, you did the enchantment trail and then you found the job with the tortoises. And then you went and did you do the PCT? Because you were planning on doing it after, correct? Yeah, so... Fall of 2008, it was kind of the perfect storm of, or no, spring, I don't know. I guess spring of 2008 was my first tortoise spring, um, and that's when that big translocation happened, and I got introduced to, introduced to tortoise world, and was like, oh yeah, this job is super cool, and then I left tortoise world and went out to Montana, where I worked as an outward bound instructor, and uh, I was working 
working that summer, leading some backpacking and canoeing trips. And uh, during that summer, a big thing happened. They decided to close the Outward Bound base that I worked at in the summer and the one that I worked at in the winter. So I found out in late August um, that those bases were closing and I had already kind of that been thinking about that through hiking aspect. And then that fall, I went back, worked Tortoise World, and then went and hiked the Grand Enchantment Trail. So that's how that timeline worked out. And then spring of 2009, that's when I, I worked a bit of tortoise work and then called it quits and went and actually... Oh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> I went and did a Knowles instructor course. Um, and then I went and started the Pacific Crest Trail. So I knew that I couldn't, I didn't have time because I needed to make money and all these other things um, that I couldn't start the PCT and hike northbound on it. I knew that I was going to have to be a southbound hiker. And at the time in 2009, there was very few people hiking southbound and it was really hard for me to find information about it. And um, luckily I found this awesome book called Yogi's PCT Guide or something like that. And uh, it turns out to be really awesome and I think kind of obsolete. I don't know. Sorry, Yogi, if you're still <laughs> selling books. <laughs> but uh, for me at the time, it was like a total lifesaver. It was just this like amazing guide to the PCT that... I could pick up and she had some southbound stuff um, in there and I was able to find a data book that went backwards or well south <laughs> and uh, so yeah I hiked I wound up hopping on the Pacific Crest Trail and starting to hike southbound and uh, I wound up I wasn't sure if I was going to make it through Washington. That was kind of my trial run. I was like, how is this going to work? Like, can I really hike on something for like four or five months? I don't know. And turned out to be the answer was yes, I totally can. And it was fun and I had a great time. And um, I got really horrible plantar fasciitis. So I was having a hard time walking. But besides this like physical pain, um, I think I just liked it so much. I liked the daily rhythm of being on the trail so much that I just really wanted to keep keep going and keep, you know, keep walking. And uh, yeah, so I wound up getting to hike it. <laughs> so a lot of times you hear that when people are hiking, you know, any, any through hike, you kind of fall into rhythm with a group of people and you sort of hike with them. So back at that time, the fact that you were going southbound and that it was before the big PCT yeah. craze... Was it pretty much solo? I mean, did you come across very many people? Yeah, it was, I was basically completely on my own, except for the craziest part was the day that I started, there was two other, I didn't know at the time that this was such a special thing. There was two other women that were starting the same day as me. And this is, I found out later, I think there was maybe 30 of us total that hiked southbound that year. And uh, it was it was crazy that three of us were starting on the same day and we got to like kind of leapfrog each other for a little bit. And then at the end of Washington, I actually, I would never do this ever again, but for some reason, I just didn't know any better at this time. So I got to the end of Washington and for some reason, I thought that it was going to be a really good idea to go and lead a couple of backpacking trips and then come back to the trail. And I was like, whatever. It didn't even occur to me that like, you know, day length gets shorter as the year goes on and stuff and uh, snow comes to the Sierra and all these things that I should totally have known. <laughs> but anyway, I wound up taking this 20 day break um, and then coming back onto the trail in Oregon at the end of August. And so by then, everyone else that was hiking southbound was long gone. They were all all down they were who knows they were like at least two weeks ahead of me on that trail so I was completely by myself the whole time I did see a bunch of northbounders for like a window of time and then um all those northbounders wound up going all the way north and I didn't <laughs> see them anymore so 
Yeah, it was a really lonely trail. It was I was very solo. I never did get that like trail family yeah. community. I never wound up with a trail name. People that met me always thought that I had a trail name just because my name kind of sounds like a trail name. <laughs> and like one of the guys was like, man, Sage, I totally thought you had the cheesiest trail name for the longest time. And then I realized it was your name name. <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah, I just didn't have that much. Like for me, especially in the beginning through hiking wasn't a social experience at all. Like a it really wasn't like my conversations that I would really look forward to would be like resupplies and going in and like talking to the grocery store person and like, I don't know, little small talk things meant the world to me on those through hikes. So what time, of, what time of the year was it when you hit the Sierras? Well, yeah, I uh, walked into the Sierra, the first like big snowstorm that I got, I was basically trying to like get through Northern California as fast as I could. And I got myself up to hiking bigger and bigger days. And um, it seemed impossible when I first started back up in Washington that I could ever hike like consistent 20 something mile days. But by the time I got back on the trail and got this sense of panic under me and realized <laughs> that the Sierras were gonna be covered in snow very shortly, um, they you coming up <laughs> hi betty um yeah the i wound up getting snowed out of the sierra in tuolumne on the i think it was maybe it was the 12th of october and then again just like a week later i was down um i got over uh the big pass near Mount Whitney and then all hell broke loose and a huge storm came in and just kind of like shut down the Sierra and I wound up having to get out and then do some complicated stuff where I wound up hiking northbound for a little bit and then hitchhiking back down and picking it up and basically piecing together the Sierra but it turned out to be 2009 was a pretty big start to a to the winter like it started in October so yeah it it was rough getting through <laughs> through the Sierra and did you keep through hiking after that I mean how many how many other trails have you done uh, since yeah so I got done with the PCT um on November 14th or something like that that year and then decided that I wanted to keep hiking that year and hitchhiked out to the Grand Enchantment Trail and tried to like finish that but ruined my knee and wound up having to do a bunch of physical therapy that winter to like get get myself back in action because I really wanted to hike the Continental Divide Trail the next year. And uh, so I knew I wanted to hike northbound on the Continental Divide Trail and I thought I could probably squeeze in a tortoise season before heading out and starting a northbound hike on the And uh, so that's kind of what I did. I just like did a bunch of physical therapy, got my body back into a shape where I could like walk again and try to do some big mile days. And then, um, yeah, I hitched a ride out to the start of the Continental Divide Trail. Well, I hitched a ride to Tucson and then my dad came out and rented a car and drove me down. I figured like, he was the one who was the most afraid of me going out on these long hikes all by myself. His daughter, oh my gosh, she's going to die out there. And uh, he always wants me to carry a gun. I'm like, Dad, I don't have a gun. I don't even shoot. And, and the, he's like, well, at least take a dog with you. And I'm like, oh man, Dad, I'm walking through the desert like a dog would die. <laughs> I almost died. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that, Dad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I figured if he saw me start this trail, that maybe it would be something that he would feel more comfortable with knowing that I was out there. But uh, did it work? Maybe don't have your dad drop you off at the Mexico-U.S. border in New Mexico. Like that, that maybe isn't the best place. Like maybe stick with Canada or like some nice like mountain town in the middle or something like that. That would be a much better idea. <laughs> 
we got stopped by border patrol like 15 times on the way to dropping me off and he was just like oh my gosh and like we camped out there and he was just like thinking there was drug dealers crossing the border every second it was it was pretty exciting but he still tells stories from it and it was really good experience it was also it didn't put his mind at ease completely or anything but I think he really enjoyed being a part of it and um yeah I mean it's probably pretty hard to be a parent of a kid who just wants to get out there and do these things and yeah so he's he still loves talking about my adventures at the coffee shop and things like that and he still worries about me and you know that's just the job of being a dad I guess. So. I, I think I think you've just given me an idea for another podcast episode where we talk to all the parents of these crazy through hikers, you know, that do stuff <laughs> and like what you live through, the anxiety and the whatever, you know. It's changed since then, though, right? I mean, everyone's got like Although, smartphones yeah. and yeah. Garmin in reach and you know ways to like check in now. You did, probably didn't have that back then. No, and I, I mean. I had a flip phone, so I did have a cell phone, which didn't really work anywhere, especially on the Continental Divide. I had this, like, I don't even remember what it was called. It was this, like, little, like, Palm Pilot-y type thing that you could, like, type a journal entry on and then, like, plug it into a phone somehow and, like, upload it. I don't even know how it worked. I only used it a few times. It was really frustrating. And uh, most of the time I would just be out like not really paying much attention and taking some photos. And I had some deal with Oboes at the time, a shoe company, and uh, they wanted me to like send in some pictures and like a couple of blog post things every now and then. So that was cool. And, but that definitely meant like slowing down a little bit and finding like a public library and using a computer and things like that. Yeah, it wasn't near as straightforward as it is now. <laughs> Man, I wish I had gotten a smartphone earlier. <laughs> but yeah, and at the time I was really, when I hiked the Continental Divide Trail, I really wanted to experience the navigation challenge of it. And so I decided not to take a GPS with me at all. Um, even though I had one for work, I use them all the time for work, but I really didn't want, I didn't want the cheater's way out. I don't see it that way anymore, <laughs> but at the time, that was definitely my mentality. It's just like, oh man, this is, I really, I, I wound up like hiking, meeting a couple of folks and like hiking a couple of stretches with people who were using GPSs and like knew where they were all the time and we'd still get lost. But um, for me, I wound up just getting in this rhythm on the Continental Divide Trail of just getting lost all the time and like being misplaced all the time and like at least once a day having at least a 10 minute moment of like okay pull out the maps figure out where I am like where's the closest water like that became really clear to me what was important about like be kind of misplaced all the time if I wanted if I if I needed to be but as long as I knew how to figure out how to get how to get water, how to get myself further north, how to get to my resupplies on time. Like those were the important things. And that was like a really good rhythm to get into. And it was it, at first when I would get misplaced, I was I would have a hard time like camping and like wanting to just get back to the trail before I like set up camp and stuff. And by the by the time I got to Colorado, I was just like, whatever. I don't know where exactly where I am, but I know I'm about here. So, you know, I found water, like no big deal. Like I got a lot more like at ease with it. And yeah, it was, it was cool to get in that rhythm. I just love the fact that you're using the word misplaced versus <laughs> lost. You're like, when I got misplaced, <laughs> like I was misplaced. Cause in general, like you weren't lost, lost. Like you knew where you were, you knew in general where you yeah. were you just were misplaced as to maybe the specific spot i kind of love that i feel like that's a metaphor in life we're not lost we're just misplaced for a moment mm -hmm. yeah and yeah. that is the, that was my biggest takeaway lesson of the continental divide trail for sure like you don't need well, to know exactly everything <laughs> that's a great skill to be that i think everybody should have like right? you know to be able to like navigate without gps 
to know, you know, be, be okay where they're at, you know, even if they're not, you know, on a specific spot on the trail that they know and, uh, and to be able to sort it out, like find water and, you know, get back to the trail at some point and all of those things that we all should have those skills. So I hats off to you for going that route. Although I don't, like you say, you know, you would use a GPS today, I suppose. I probably would. Well, in more recent hikes, when I've gotten my smartphone and like, well, the last two bigger trails that I did, it's been 2015 was my last like longer hike. I hiked the Bigfoot Trail, which um, according to my GPX track, so I did take a GPS because I wanted to keep a GPX track of the trail and then be able to donate that to the trail um, association and make sure that they could have one more track, something that wasn't just drawn on a map, but something that was ground truth. And uh, so I carried a GPS and uh, a bunch of batteries for that GPS and like kept that track the whole way. And uh, yeah, and it was really nice to kind of have some sense of like, I still have a mentality when I'm using a GPS where I'm only going to look at it if I really can't figure it out on my on my maps. Like I just feel like it's it's good for my brain and it's good for me to be misplaced sometimes and remind myself of like that's part of the big adventure and the draw to these hikes for me is is that engagement with the landscape and these awesome maps that people have created and I'm a map geek too. I love maps mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, just pouring over the maps and, and I'll do, I'll look at maps for trails that I've done, you know, and I can, I can like read the map and br it brings back, you know, every memory, you know, like, Oh, the view right here was amazing or whatever, you know? And, uh, Oh, this is where we camped and that kind of thing. So it's really, it's, I, I think, there's uh, map geeks can really appreciate, you know, the value of maps, paper maps, or even just online maps can be great too. Yeah, when I teach Mapping Compass, after the class, one of the things I recommend is getting a map of a trail that you're actually super familiar with and that you don't actually need because you're so familiar with it and now you're learning to read the map. And so it's easy to kind of work back. It's almost like backwards logic, right? You're like, I know where I am. Now I'm looking map like, oh, I can see the ridge. I can see, the, like, I know where I am on the trail. And so like, an, oh, that's what those squiggly lines mean now that I know what they are. Or, oh, this is now that I'm orienting this map. Now I know which direction I'm facing. So, yeah. Oh, this is a cliff. Know. Oh, I, I see. Yeah. <laughs> so you went, uh, Sage, you went, you did the PCT. Then you went right into pretty much, you know, soon after you did the CDT. Then what? You Did you, at what point did you decide, okay, what am I going to do next? And, you know, I want to keep, well, keep it, keep it going. <laughs> so with the CDT, I wound up really messing up my feet in the first week. Um, and so I wound up taking a zero day in, uh, basically I hiked into this town called Lordsburg, New Mexico. And at the time there was a town just to the east of Lordsburg and there was this great trail angel. And so I hobbled into Lordsburg and called up the trail angel and was like, uh, can I come have a zero day at your house and just like try to recuperate and figure out some different footwear? And um, the guy was like, sure, come on over. And uh, while I was hanging out with him, he got a phone call from this friend of his that was a hiker and he couldn't talk at the moment. So he just handed the phone to me and I wound up talking with this guy, Lee Branfors and um, he mentioned something about that he had hiked the Appalachian Trail and the Continental Divide Trail in the same year. And I was like, oh, so it just kind of like <laughs> planted the seed and that seed just kind of like wouldn't shake out of my brain at all the whole way up to Canada. And uh, I got to Canada and I still couldn't let the idea go. And I thought like, well, I'm not that excited about the AT. Like, it's not something that I've been dreaming of for years or anything. I've just the hordes of I had imagined that it was like full of people and buggy and East Coasty and like you didn't even need a map. There was a guy called No Map that was hiking the 
that year and he had hiked the Appalachian Trail without a map. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, why would you hike without a map? <laughs> That's crazy. But uh, yeah, I figured like, if I'm in really good hiking shape anyway, and I, like, I might as well just like, the AT is one you can hike kind of in the winter time. And um, a friend of mine, Trauma, he had hiked it in the winter when he did a calendar year um, triple crown. And so I knew that people could do it and it just seemed like something that maybe I could just bop over there and hike the AT. So that's what I did. (laughs) I took about two weeks off and uh, flew to Boston and then took some buses up to Maine and um, hopped on the trail and started hiking south and uh, finished in Georgia on Christmas Eve. And my mom came and picked me up and my grandparents at the time, they lived um, right near the Southern, like within an hour of the Southern, like the ending point of, of the AT. So oh, I got cool. to like go have Christmas with my family. <laughs> so technically did you do them all backwards your first time? Yeah, I guess like most yeah. people do. Uh, go north, north, south, down, north. Yeah. And they usually start on the AT yeah. and like finish up on the Continental yeah. Divide and I just went the wrong direction on every single trail <laughs> at the wrong time of year. And like somehow I hiked the entire Triple Crown in this like 18 month span. And I like still never got to really hike that much with other people. The Continental Divide Trail was by far my most social trail. Like I got to like hang out. I hiked with another person for 20 days on that trail. Like it was kind of crazy that like, yeah. For me, my my experience of the Triple Crown is really, really different than anybody else's. But that's the same, really, even if you hike it in a super traditional pathway, it's easy to get lulled into the sense that, like, through hiking is supposed to be a certain way. But everybody's hike's so unique and so different. And mine just happened to be in this, like, weird outlier situation <laughs> of hiking backwards and in snow and things like that. Awesome. So you didn't get a trail name on the PCT. Have you ever gotten a trail name since? No, I still don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> so you've done the yeah. Triple Crown, but you've never gotten a trail name. Wow. No. Continental Divide Trail, I thought maybe I was going to get a trail name because I ran into my friends Kelly and Dave, and uh, it was I just met them in Rawlings, Wyoming, and in Rollins, Wyoming, there was this amazing grocery store with like a Amish bakery in it. And I just like loaded up my pack with all these muffins and like pastries and like so much so that I couldn't fit anything in there anymore. And there was like muffins attached to the top of my backpack. And they just like, I pulled up in camp and they were like, what the heck? I was just like unpacking the clown car of, of pastries and like handing them muffins and stuff. And I, I think they wanted to name me after a pastry. Yeah. <laughs> 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 awesome. Well, well, our good friend Legend was named after p- uh, for pizza. So you know, I think food is Ooh. definitely a, a big time inspiration for for trail names. You know, <laughs> one track mind <laughs> kind of scenario. It sounds like you had a pretty nomadic life with all the through hiking and outward bound and the desert stuff. What? Yeah. What brought you to Bend and sort of settling down into your adorable house, by the way, <laughs> across the street? Um, well, I, in 2011, wound up working on, um, in back in Tortoise World. I So I'd wrapped up the Appalachian Trail and um, already was kind of thinking about making a hiking route across California and um I'd been planning it that winter and um yeah the idea for this route was to start kind of like up in northern California where near where I grew up um the trail would start at the furthest point west in California Cape Mendocino and end at Mount Whitney I thought at the time then I readjusted it and had it end at Badwater, which is the lowest point in the continental United States and uh, in Death Valley. And uh, yeah, so I had this like grand plan and I'd been scouting and kind of like piecing everything together. 
And then I went to go make some money because I needed to do that before doing this hike. And I was on this large scale solar installation um, near Las Vegas. And they wound up at my job, they basically wound up needing a bunch more biologists than they'd ever needed before. So there was a bunch of brand new people and new faces. And um, my now husband, Adam, showed up on that project too. So we met in an elevator in a really, really gross casino in Prim, Nevada. And uh, we started hanging out and he decided to come on that through hike with me. And so that was kind of our first like big date. <laughs> we hiked across California together and he already lived in Bend. He moved here in 2008. And so by the time I was done hiking with him across California, I was like, oh, I can probably give Ben a try and see how this, this goes for a winter. And here I am. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I wound up in Bend. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And they're both amazing. And when I, I came to look at the house that I'm living renting now in January, and I, was it your dad who was there oh, yeah yes i think your dad was there and he came over like he's like hi how's it and, like introduced himself and i'm just like looking at this rental i'm like i think i want to live here and you guys came over and i was like i love this place i love this neighborhood and these are going to be my amazing neighbors i'm like i'm in i like signed the lease that night i was like that's awesome <laughs> this all feels good this feels amazing yeah and then i got the email from Jeff a couple weeks ago and I'm like Sage that's funny that's my neighbor's name and then I was like oh ha it is literally <laughs> then I actually read the email <laughs> it's literally my neighbor which is awesome <laughs> I remember meeting you and I was like oh she's our people yeah totally this is good <laughs> I'm here working with Ingrid oh we know Ingrid it was like small world I was like oh we were like totally yeah my people's yeah you're, all you Bendites are like pod people. It's like one person goes up and then another, and they just disappear and they never go back to wherever they they you know they were from before. <laughs> happy, happy. Yeah. So we're uh, still doing the desert tortoise research. Yeah. So that has stayed consistent throughout. Yeah. Of all, I mean, I guess that that migratory lifestyle that I had before just toned down a little bit and got a lot more domestic with buying a house and like diving into getting to actually have a place that I had roots and like getting to hang out in one spot more than like a few nights for, <laughs> for a while. Um, but every spring and every fall when the tortoises wake up, uh, I still go down to the desert and get to roam around and live in a truck and be out there and then come back and like get to enjoy like living in a house and having a roof and hot showers and so yeah, twice a year I get that big reminder of how wonderful domestic life is, and also twice a year I get that reminder of how awesome it is to live out and on the road and be able to sleep in different places and choose campsites and navigate and all that. When you're in bed, what are some of the things that you like to do here, and do you still try to do like shorter through hikes or longer hikes or just, yeah, what, what do you do for outdoorsy fun now? Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, when I'm at work, I really like I'm I'm just outside all the time, and I kind of at least for the first few weeks when I get back, I'm just like, Ugh, I don't want to leave the house at all, so I might not <laughs> leave the house. And uh, in yeah, the rest like in the winters, I love getting up and playing in the snow and just going out cross country skiing or playing at Mount Bachelor um, or going for a winter road trip or whatever. And in the summer, getting out backpacking is always great and just getting the feet on the ground. Or like last summer, I got to go out to Minnesota and go for a canoe trip, which I'd never done before. So that's always fun to like add something new in. And yeah, it's really nice to have these big blocks of time where I can schedule that type of stuff, but it definitely hasn't include long, included long trails for a while just because, yeah, I have so much stuff to do here. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and a mortgage, right? You're like, wow, I'm paying all this money for this mortgage. You know, <laughs> it feels silly to not be there for six months, you know? That's right. <laughs> I'm going to circle back to the tortoise for just a second. Okay. Yeah, could, because you you promised you would tell us something about these transmitters <laughs> on tortoises and i'm trying to picture like them messaging each other or, you know 
<laughs> you know, it's like, like, hey, what's up? Where you? What you doing? You know, just chilling. What are you doing? What What are the transmit? Tell us about the transmitters. So the transmitters are these cool little radio devices that we stick onto a tortoise's shell um, with epoxy, and it's kind of like this fun little arts and crafts project where you get to like play with epoxy and smash them on there and make sure it's done well so that the tortoise can still grow and it doesn't impede their movement. And then we can take antennas and receivers and go out and track them. And there's no like GPS logger or anything on most of these tortoises that we're doing. So these are just radio transceivers and we have to go out and physically track them like once a week or once a month to see where they're moving and who they're hanging out with and where they're living and what they're doing. And so a lot of my favorite thing to do while I'm at work is going out and tracking tortoises and just getting to like follow a little beep and go find where they are and see what they're up to. I feel like that sounds like a dream, like a little scavenger, like desert scavenger hunts for tortoises. Yeah, it's, there's a lot similar, like if you like Easter egg hunts, you would really yeah. like tortoise biology. <laughs> yeah, so he was spending a lot of time at Joshua Tree. I've definitely seen a couple of big ones, but my favorite was I was leading a backcountry navigation hike, and one of my participants literally goes, oh my god, and we all stop. We're like, what? He goes, look, and he had almost stepped, and it was a baby tortoise, and it was literally like the size of an egg, and it was the cutest thing we'd ever seen. We're all like, oh my god, one, how did you not step on it? And two, like, there's nothing cuter than a baby tortoise. <laughs> Absolutely. It was like, it was like teeny tiny. True like, words have never been said. Yeah. <laughs> they are adorable. So people wanted to learn more about tortoises and like where would and the desert tortoise and the work that you're doing, where would people go and find more information? Yeah, the Desert Tortoise Council is a really good resource as well as the Fish and Wildlife Service has some really awesome resources, especially for the Desert Tortoise Recovery Office. Um that's those are two really good spots to to look and start more than more than wikipedia deep yeah. <laughs> you know you can learn a lot more about tortoises and what they're dealing with right now because yeah they're they're having a rough go <laughs> it'd be really cool to try to keep them around a bit longer so yeah and if people are interested in doing that kind of work is it something that's still is there still a lot of work to be had or Ish. It's it's a really hard field to get into, but there are some really neat companies, specifically one called Ironwood Consulting, that are still taking sometimes taking people on and training training new employees. Um, but it's a really challenging field to to find your way into unless the timing has to work out. You have to be doing just the right thing and have just the right qualifications and boom you can you can get in yeah well thank you so much sage for coming on the podcast it's been a pleasure thanks for walking across the street yeah thanks for coming on sage. <laughs> yeah. it was great talking to you <laughs> yeah thanks y'all for having me <laughs> well that's gonna do it for us please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on instagram at almost there underscore ap or the almost there adventure podcast on facebook if you'd like to support us financially, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash A-T-A-P. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out our show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. And for the third year in a row, we've dedicated March to Women's History Month by having an episode with an amazing lady every week. Last up is GirlOnAHike.com's Alicia Baker. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>